It's so good uh, to be here. Uh, yeah, I, I was Tyler's uh, college pastor back in the day, probably 06, 07. And uh, those were really, really, that was one of my favorite seasons of my life. Uh, just I, I taught at Palomar and was a college pastor with uh, some amazing people. Went to Uganda. We had, we had some great times together. I actually met my wife at his place back in the day, like right there on Grand. Uh, it's like kettle car or something now, but... Uh, but yeah, so that, that's where I met her. And we lived on 3rd and like Escondido Boulevard. So I lived like three blocks from here uh, back when we first got married. So I love Escondido. So sweet to be back and to see this work of God that he's doing. And so I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. So uh, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Like, like what motivates you? Well, what keeps you going when you feel tired? What gets you back up when you fall down? What gives you hope when things look bleak? James Smith has this saying, he says, to be human is to be animated and orientated by some vision of the good life. What he's saying is basically all of us have some picture of the good life. And it's actually this picture of the good life that both guides and empowers and motivates everything else that we do. Now, the thing is, you, you might not, like, be able to articulate exactly what that vision is. You might not have it, like, you know, into, like, some mission statement for your life. We're not always fully conscious of it. But the reality is all of us have some vision of what is the good life. And that's vision, that pursuit, that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. That's what, we, what, what, what keeps us going when things get hard. And, and so I wanted to start this morning even just by asking you a few questions that might help you think through what, what is my vision of the good life. So how do you define success? At the end of a day, how do you decide if this was a good day or a bad day? What are your if-onlys? If only this, then everything would be better. Then everything would be okay. If only I had a better job. If only my kids would listen to me. If only I could afford, I wasn't going to say a nicer house, but in California, you just want to afford a house, right? You know, if only I could afford a house. If only I got married. If only my marriage was a, a more peaceful marriage. What are your if onlys? The way you answer these questions helps give you a better understanding of what it is you really believe about the good life. And you got to remember, your vision of the good life, whether you can articulate it or not, is what both guides and motivates every other decision you make. And that's why it's so important that you and I make sure that we have the right understanding of the good life, right? Think about that. If, if your vision of the good life guides and empowers everything you do, then you got to make sure that you have the right understanding of what the good life is. And so in order to help us do that this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is what's called a wisdom psalm. And one of the things some of the wisdom psalms are meant to do is they're meant to help us understand and help us answer that question, what is the good life? So the psalmist begins in verse 1, and he begins by saying something that's been ingrained in his head since he was a little kid. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those 
who are pure in heart. It's like this has been pounded into his head since he's a little kid. There's some churches you go to, the pastor will say, like, God is good, right? And then everybody else says, all the time, right? I mean, so that's the church that this guy went to, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's what they did. And so from the time he's a kid, all he's been hearing is God is good to his people. God is good to his people. And so he starts the psalm by saying, okay, I'm just going to get this out there. This is what I've been told all my life. God is good to Israel. Surely he is. But that's as far as he gets before he finds himself running into a problem. And the problem that he runs into is this. If God is really good to his people, then why aren't I living the good life? You ever felt that way? You ever wondered, if God is really good to his people, why is my life so hard? If God is good, why would he let my parents get a divorce? If God is good, why would he let my child rebel? If God is good, why can't I even afford to pay my bills? If God is good, why did my spouse leave me? Why are my parents sick? Why do I feel so lonely? Why so anxious? Why so despairing? If God is good to his people, then why is my life so hard? That's what the psalmist can't figure out. That's what he's trying to understand. And it's not just that his life is really hard. He looks around and he sees all these people who could care less about God. And their life seems so easy. Everything seems to be going right for him. And he doesn't get it. Look at verse 2 through 4. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. He goes on a 10-verse rant about the prosperity of the wicked, and he concludes in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. You want to know you really want to know how you're defining the good life. I'll be honest with you, I kind of held out on you guys at the beginning. You really want to know how you're defining the good life? All you got to do is look at what it is that you envy. Whatever it is that you envy, that is how you're defining the good life. We can tell how the psalmist is defining the good life, right? You can tell by what he's envying. He's defining the good life as a life of comfort, wealth, and ease. And we know that because those are the things that he's envying. And what the psalmist can't seem to understand is this. If God is good to his people, why are the wicked the ones living the good life and not him? And at this point, it's crazy because... It ceases in the psalmist's mind to really be about comfort and wealth and ease anymore. All of a sudden for the psalmist, the main issue in his mind is that he finds himself struggling to believe that God is actually good to his people. 
He wants to believe that God is good to his people. He wants to. He's been told it all of his life. He's been pounded into him. He wants to believe it, but he can't seem to do it anymore because he realizes he's not living the good life. Look at what he says in verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He thought, he says this, I thought, I've been told all my life, God was good to the pure in heart. So you know what I did? I kept my heart pure. But God hasn't given me the good life. And now I'm starting to wonder if it was all in vain. Now initially, when you read this, it might seem like there's got to be some, like you hear this and you're like, I think the psalmist is off somewhere. But I want you to think about it. It sounds for a moment like his logic has got to be off because this doesn't sound like right stuff. But the craziest thing is when you look at his logic, his logic is actually sound. If God is in control of everything, and if God is really good to his people, well, then his people ought to be living the good life. If God is in control of everything, and if he's really good to his people, then how could he not give his people the good life? I want to tell you something. It's actually really hard to believe that God is good to you if you don't think that you're living the good life. I wonder if I would have been at the door, you know what I'm saying, and when you came in, and if I would have just asked each one of you, so, living the good life? You know, some of you, you know, maybe you would have said yes, right? You know, things are going amazing, right? But some of you, I bet, would say, no, no. Some of you might think, almost, you might be like, oh, I, I can see the good life. It's just around the bend. I'm almost there. I'm excited. I, I got a promotion coming. I think this is, I think things are starting to turn around. Some of you might be saying, I gave up on the good life a long time ago. But I bet a lot of you, or a number of you, may not have answered that question with a joyous yes. Yeah, I'm definitely living the good life. And I think that goes a long way in explaining why so many times we find it difficult to trust that God is really good to us. Ever wonder why you had such a hard time trusting that God was good to you? If you do not believe that you're living the good life, it's impossible to truly trust that God is being good to you. But if the psalmist's logic is sound, right? If we're going to say, okay, that logic sounds sound, where is the breakdown? Because I'm pretty sure most of us know there's got to be something off with that, like, all in vain if I kept my life pure part, right? Like, so something's got to be off. If it's not his definition, if it's not, you know, his logic, then what is it? And, well, verse 17, we see that the psalm actually takes a turn. And we finally get a glimpse of what the problem is. Now what's interesting is in verse 17, none of the psalmist's circumstances change at all. The wicked are still rich 
and he is still suffering. So no circumstances change at all. But what happens is as he enters into the sanctuary, what we see is that his definition of the good life begins to change. You see, it's not the psalmist's logic that was off. If God is good to his people, then they will be living the good life. It wasn't his logic that was off. It was his definition of the good life. In verse 17, it says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Standing there in the temple, all of a sudden, the psalmist realized that he got it all wrong. In that moment, it just hit him. Even though the wicked were rich, even though their life was easy, even though they had no pains toward death until death, even though they seemed so comfortable, the wicked were not living the good life. All of a sudden, he realized the wicked, they're on this slippery slope, and in an instant, every single thing that they've been living for is going to be swept away utterly by terrors. And when he realized that, all of a sudden, he understood Look at verse 18 and 19. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. Standing there in the sanctuary, I want you to picture it. He must have felt like he just got kicked in the gut. Because all of a sudden he realized that he'd been envying people You understand what envy is, right? Like envy is like, I wish I was them. Right? He's looking and he's saying, I wish I was them. And all of a sudden he feels like he's been kicked in the gut because he realizes that he was envying people on their way to hell. He was saying, I wish I was them. To a bunch of people that would soon be in hell. How often have we done that? How often have we envied a neighbor or a classmate or a coworker because we thought that they had something that we wanted? Basically, we've said, I wish I was them. I wish I had their life. It's crazy, right? Because as Christians, instead of longing, to tell our neighbors about the hope that we have in Christ, how many times have we been distracted by longing to have something that they have? How are we going to be witnesses, right, for for Jesus if our neighbors can tell that we're more interested in what they have than in offering them what we have, that That's what the psalmist has been doing. He's been so focused on wanting what the wicked had that he completely forgot that they were on their way to hell. When he realized what he's been doing, it just hit him. Look at verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked at heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. The psalmist realizes his envy, it was born out of ignorance, and it had actually turned him into a beast. He'd been living like, a, like an animal. Unfortunately, I've seen 
envy do the same thing in my life. A number of years ago, uh, we had a woman that was from Arizona, a friend of, of somebody in our church. She was passing through, and we had a Bible study on a Friday night. And so she came to a Bible study at my house. And I found out that she was a part of like a core group at a church plant. And uh, they had just started like uh, less than a year ago. And so, you know, I know you guys are a church plant as well. So I, I love church planting. We planted Cleo in 2009. And so I was excited and I was thinking like, man, I want to just talk to her. I just felt like I want to encourage her. I know how hard church planting is. You know, maybe there's just some way that like maybe like I could give her some encouragement or something, you know, being a few years ahead down the road, something. Uh, I, I was stoked. Couldn't wait to talk to her. You know, so I got a big smile on my face. Like, oh, hey, I hear you're like a part of a church plant. She's like, yes. And trying to get like the context a little bit, you know, to kind of get my bearings. I was like, so how many people you got? Like, what's going on? And she's like, ah, oh, you know, maybe 200 and some. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. You know, I, I, honestly, I wasn't expecting, you know, that. So, uh, so then I was like, uh, you know, but I, I pivoted real quick because I thought, oh, it, it, it I, I know, I, I know how I can still be happy. I thought, oh, you must have taken like, like a, a huge group, like from a mother church or something, right? Like maybe you take like 150 people, like in your core group from this like mega church or something. And she's like, oh, no, no. We started maybe 30, 40 people. We just been, you know, God's just been blowing us up since then. It's been crazy. <laughs> so, uh, so I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. I didn't really feel that excited, you know. <laughs> I didn't really feel that excited about talking about church planting anymore. And, uh, and uh, I tell you, it's the craziest thing I, I realized. Like, uh, you know, I kind of found my way, you know, to like the, the line for food or something and just, uh, you know, kind of pretended that she wasn't in the church planting. And, uh, and, but I'll tell you what, this is messed up. I'll tell you what. Like, I realized, I realized I think I would have been happier and we would have had a much more fun and enjoyable conversation if her church was like a little smaller. You know, like if it was, if it looked more like ours. Because, and like, tell me, this is, just tell me, like when I say it, like I recognize it's, it, 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 it's, it's brutish, right? It's, it's, it's like, like, it's actually, what is better news? They took 150 people from a mother church or they took 30 and like God has just been bringing people from the neighborhood of their church ever since. What is better? That's so much better. Like, what is better? Like, we're struggling and we have 70 people and things are really hard or, you know, like, what, 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 like, sure, like, the, in one sense, what she said isn't something that I should have felt discouraged by. It's more encouraging. It's like great news. But you see, what had happened is I'd begin to understand the good life as a fast-growing church. And what I couldn't understand is why after eight years of trying so hard, that wasn't happening for us. And why this lady got to be a part of a church that just starts and all of a sudden they don't do anything and it happens to them. You see, see, see how your understanding of the good life can change your perspective? 
you can tell just how, like the psalmist, I was brutish, I was ignorant. That's what happened to the psalmist. It was envy that Friday night that stole my joy. It was envy that sprung up because I misunderstood the good life. I misinterpreted the good life. And what I couldn't understand is why this lady had the good life, and I didn't. And we were trying so hard. That's what happened to the psalmist. His understanding of the good life led him to act in a way that was brutish and ignorant towards God. And as the psalmist began to come to grips with what he had done, and the bitterness, and the ignorance, and the beastliness of his own heart, you know what he realized? He's actually no better than the wicked. Looking down, we see in verse 1, he saw that he was standing on the same slippery slope that they were on. And just like them, he deserved to be swept utterly away by tears. But somehow that's not what happened. Look at verse 23 and 24. Even though he was a brute beast and he was ignorant towards God, he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by the hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will welcome me into glory. Like what happened, right? What happened? How had the psalmist survived on this slippery slope when just like the wicked, his feet had begun to slip? How had he escaped being destroyed in a moment like he deserved for his ignorant, brutish, distrust. The psalmist looked up and he realized the only reason he hadn't fallen with the wicked is because his God had held him up by the hand. You ever slip? Y'all don't have ice here or anything, but, uh, but I'm from Chicago, you know, so we got ice. But, but, but it's possible to slip even without ice. Like, uh, like you, do you ever, you ever, like, slip and have that chill just go through your body? You know what I'm saying? Like where you, where you lost control? I want, now I want you to imagine you're, you're climbing a mountain, you know, you're hiking the Grand Canyon, and all of a sudden you slip, and that chill goes through your body. Except for now, it's not slipping three feet onto the floor, but it's slipping down the side of a mountain. And all of a sudden, even as the chill goes through the, your body, all of a sudden an arm grips your arm and it pulls you up. And you see the rocks by your feet just tumble. And they tumble. And they tumble. And you know that ought to be you. That's what happened to the psalmist. He realized the Lord had grabbed him by the arm and he had held him when his feet had begun to slip. And that he ought to be bounding down the mountain just like the rest of the wicked. At this point, he finds himself utterly overwhelmed and he says in verse 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you and on this earth? What is their desire? to desire beside you. My flesh, my heart, they may fail, but you, you're the strength of my heart, and you're my portion forever. 
The word portion, I love that word. It means enough. He says, you're my enough. You're my enough. And you will be forever. And then in verse 28, he just summarizes the whole thing. He brings it all together and he just says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. The NASB, it just says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. It's my good. You see what happened? The psalmist's entire perspective is changed, and all of a sudden, he understands what the good life is. At the beginning of the psalm, you'll notice, there are a lot of things on earth that the psalmist desires beside God, right? Seems like there's 12 verses worth of things that he desires beside God. At the beginning of the psalm, he seemed very concerned about his flesh and the suffering that he was going through. At the beginning of the psalm, he was convinced the wicked were the ones living the good life. But everything has changed now. Now he understands the truth. He sees the wicked are tumbling down a slippery slope, falling headlong to an eternal destiny of suffering. And he knows the only thing that kept him from falling with them is that his God has been with him, holding him by the hand, guiding him with this constant. And he finally gets it. He finally understands what the good life is. And that's why he basically just says, as for me, I finally figured out what the good life is. The good life is to be near God. We like to say at our church, the nearness of God is the good life. That's the good life. Of course, it does raise a question. And the question is, how could a holy God give a brute beast like the psalmist the good life? I mean, what does verse 1 says? As for you, surely you are good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That makes sense. If the psalmist was pure in heart, we'd have no conflict with this passage we think oh it makes sense he was good to him because he was pure in heart but what does he say my heart was embittered I was brutish and ignorant like a beast towards you so how does a holy God give a brute beast the good life you ever wonder that you ever ask yourself that question you ever do something so brutish and so ignorant that you found yourself wondering how God could really love you? You ever done something you thought you'd never do? Something you felt judgmental about other people doing? You always looked down on people that did, and then one day you looked up and realized you did that thing you never thought you'd do. You ever do something so bad that you didn't even like yourself. Like you don't even want to be around yourself. You don't want to be in a quiet room because it makes you think about yourself and you don't like it. And so you start to wonder, if I don't even like being by myself, if I don't want to be with me, if I'm feeling disillusioned with me, with all my strong bias for myself. How on earth could God ever love me? How on earth could God ever really want to spend time with me? 
The psalm is meant to leave us all asking that question. How can a holy God give sinners like you and me the good life? How, how does he do that? And for centuries, God's people waited. They waited to see how he would answer that question. How is he going to relieve this massive tension that this psalm lays upon us? They waited and they waited until one day, one day the sanctuary of God took on flesh and came down to earth. And unlike any human being that's ever lived, this one human being was pure in heart. That means if anybody ever deserved a good life, and only one person has, it was him. Remember what the good life is, right? The good life is to be near God. What does John 1.18 says Jesus did for all eternity? He lived for all eternity in the lap of the Father. What's it trying to say? It's trying to say for all eternity he had the good life, living in the lap of the Father. Nevertheless, Jesus willingly left his Father's side, and he came down to earth to live among the wicked. And you know what he did when he, when he looked at the wicked and as he watched their life? You know what he saw? He saw they seemed to get away with everything. And the whole time, his life was stricken smitten by God and afflicted. Just like the psalmist. But unlike the psalmist, he never complained. He refused to envy the wicked, even though their life was so easy. They had no pains until death. And he refused to distrust his father, even though his life was so hard. And he was stricken and afflicted by God. Still, even though he responded perfectly, he found himself on a slippery slope. Can you imagine going from being hailed as the Messiah in the temple to being hung on a cross outside of Jerusalem in five days? What's that sound like? That's a slippery slope. That is a fast fall. And there on the cross, Jesus continued to slip as he found himself falling further and further down towards the dreadful wrath of God. And in the hour of his greatest trial, God the Father, who had always been by his side, as he slipped, and as the chills went down his back, the Father let go of his hand. And he fell headlong into the judgment of the wicked. Make no mistake, on the cross, Jesus was swept utterly away by terrors. In that moment, he stopped experiencing the good life as he felt the nearness of God forsake him. And he found himself suffering the judgment of the wicked all by himself. It was from that place that he cried out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Finally, the tension of Psalm 73 is relieved as the innocent son of God gave up the good life so that he could offer it to brute beasts like us. The pure in heart gave up the good life so he could offer it to those who have been embittered Envious of the wicked. 
There at the cross, the Father let go of Jesus' hands so that when our feet began to slip, he might grab hold of ours. God turned his back on his only son so that he might be continually with us. 1 Peter 3, 18 tells us Jesus left the Father's side. That's the good life. So that he could bring us to it. So, Know this for certain. God is good to his people. The one who did not spare his son, but freely, him up, freely offered him up for us. That God, he is good to his people. And he's good to his people all the time. He's good to his people when we feel it, and he's good to us when we don't. He's good to us when we believe it, and he's good to us when we doubt it. He's good to us when we succeed, and he's good to us when we fail. He's good to us when people love us, and he's good to us when people leave us. He's good to us when things go well, and he's good to us when they all fall apart. This God is good to his people. If you really want to know what the good life is, I'll tell you what the good life is. It's just to know that this God is continually with you. That he holds you by the hand and he will not let you slip into the judgment that you deserve. And he guides you through all the complexities of this life with his counsel. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself strengthen, establish, restore, and confirm you. And he will welcome you into glory. First time I ever preached this psalm. I preached this psalm 12 years ago. And uh, I still remember that season of my life. Like, uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. My wife and I, we are unable to have children of our own, and uh, I do a Bible study for the homeless every Friday night called Feasting with the Poor, and we had a homeless woman that uh, told us one Friday that she'd been raped by her ex-boyfriend and that she was six months pregnant, and she asked us if we'd adopt her son, or her, not her son, her, her child, it's a little girl, but I asked us if we'd adopt her baby. We didn't know at that time what, what she would be. But uh, we said yes, and my wife began to take her. We actually both began to take her to all her doctor's appointments, and we look at the ultrasounds. And then we had, a, you know, a baby shower. And you can only imagine, right, like uh, what the pastor's wife that can't have kids' baby shower is like. You know what I'm saying? It was like uh, it was real, you know. So, uh, so, so, like so many people, so many things. It was just crazy. And we began to decorate the room and put together. And we, we began to prepare ourselves for something that we honestly didn't know we'd ever get to experience, you know, holding a little baby and uh, having a child of our own. The baby was born, a little, she named her Cynthia. We went to the hospital and we picked up Cynthia and we brought her home. And uh, Cynthia was, uh, she was detoxing from some, uh, some drugs in her system. And so she struggled to sleep at night. And so I remember my wife would take the day shift and I would take the night shift, but basically, the kid had to be held all the time. So, uh, so we bonded pretty quickly with Cynthia. I would hold her most of the night long. And, uh, and three weeks went by, and we began, 
we, we were pretty close by then. She was starting to recover from the, the things in her system and getting back to normal. And uh, life was really good. We were really excited. And then out of the blue, we got a phone call one night. And there's a social worker. And she said, you know what? Uh, there's been some new developments. I guess the, the dad didn't really rape the mom. And um, he just got a new girlfriend. And she says she wants to raise the baby. So, uh, so maybe tomorrow, here's his address. And tomorrow, I need you to take baby Cynthia and all the stuff that you have uh, for her. And you need to give her back to her dad at 10 AM. And so uh, I remember I held her all night. And then we gave her a last bottle. And, and we took some pictures as a family. We packed up the van. I'm pretty sentimental, so I, I washed out the bottle. It, it still sits on my shelf in my office. We drove her with all of her stuff to her dad's house. And we got out, and I held baby Cynthia while her dad unloaded the van. And uh, all the stuff everybody gave us. And, uh, and then the van was empty, and then I had to hand Cynthia to her dad. And, and then me and my wife walked back to the van. And we got in. And the crazy thing is, it's like she'd been quiet the whole ride. But like the silence, when we got back in the van, was a different silence than the one before we got out. And it felt empty, even though she's real small. And uh, we sat there and we just cried. And we didn't drive off for a long time. And I remember finally, I just preached this psalm the week before. So finally, I looked at my wife and I just took her hand and I said, beautiful. I said, you and me, we got the good life. Right here, right now. It's the good life. To know that our God is still with us in this empty van that he's not going to let us slip because he's holding our hands. That he's going to guide us through whatever the future holds. And that one day, all this pain is going to seem light and momentary when he welcomes us into his glory. You see, God taught me that day that uh, the good life's not having a baby. Good life's not having a great family or a growing church. That day in that car with red eyes and a broken heart, God reminded me, the good life is just to know that he's with us, that he loves us. So I think before we go any further in life, it'd be good to... Uh, be good to take some time this morning and just remember, make sure that we rightly understand what the good life is. Sometimes it helps me to think about what it is that Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood in my place for. Because we know he died to give us the good life, and so it helps me to remember the Son of God, he, he didn't shed his blood on the cross so that I could have a baby. 
He didn't shed his blood on the cross so I could have a bigger house or a better job or more obedient kids or a happier marriage. Jesus didn't give up the good life to give us comfort and ease and riches until death comes and steals them all away from us. That's not why he shed his blood on the cross. He died. The righteous one for the unrighteous suffered so that he could bring us to God. He gave up the good life so that he could give it to us, so that he could bring us to God. That's the good life. That's what he shed his blood for. The craziest thing, I'll tell you the craziest thing, is that no matter how you came in here today, and no matter what you would have said when you walked through that door, like, and no matter how far the good life may have appeared to you to be when you walked in, or even if you'd given up ever getting it, the craziest thing is you can actually have the good life right now. You can leave here with the good life. And you can leave here with a good life that nothing will ever be able to take away from you. So this morning, I just think it'd be sweet if we would join the psalmist. And for the last 12 years, Time and time again in my life, I've just had to brand this thought in my head. When things don't go the way I want them to, or when I find myself feeling envious, or when I feel wound up and frustrated and lost, I just have to remind myself, as for me, the nearness of God, that's a good life. And our God will never leave us or forsake us. He will always be continually with us. He will hold us by the hand. He will guide us with his counsel. And he will welcome us one day into glory. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, we just... is overwhelming that, that you would... Send your only son to shed his precious blood on the cross so that brute beasts like us who have been envious of people on their way to hell, envious of the wicked, that you would shed your blood so that you could be continually with us. Sometimes we haven't even slipped. We've just like turned and ran and you still held our hand. You won't let us go. So thank you. Thank you that no matter what happens in this life, how hard it gets or how dark it seems, you are always beside us. Jesus, thanks. Thanks for leaving the Father's side, the pure in heart dying for the embittered, so that you could bring us back with you. God, would you open our eyes so that for the rest of our days we might remember that your nearness is the good life. In Jesus' name, amen.